Hey everyone, welcome to the first feature episode of Pick the Bones, a movie podcast where I open up my favorite movies and pull the tastiest bits of meat from between their bones. This first episode, I'll be talking about the 1993 crime drama classic True Romance, the joint venture between Quentin Tarantino and Tony Scott, and highlighting some of my most enjoyable reasons why I love this movie and love recommending it to other people. I want to give a big thanks to anyone who's listening to this and to anyone who joined me on premiere night to listen to me stream this podcast. This was my first try taking a shot at doing a podcast, and if all goes well, maybe I'll give it another shot sometime down the road. For those who don't know me, I am a filmmaker, I am a VTuber, as you can see, and streamer on Twitch who goes by the name of Lonan among the furry community. My Twitch chat convinced me after many a night ranting about movies uh, to give the podcast format a shot to talk about movies I love, and this was the result of that. What I'll be doing here and would like to do with other movies in the future is to break this movie down into categories like best supporting performances or most interesting photography, uh, as well as a few less technical categories like whether or not, you know, I would want to wear the jackets of certain movie characters featured or what three-course meal would I recommend you eat while watching this movie. This is a sort of way to open up the discussion beyond just the film expert language and have a little bit more fun with the movies, as I don't really take seriously the notion of aggregate scoring or assigning numbers to talk about whether or not a movie is worth your time to see. This is a highly opinionated but ultimately affectionate podcast. I have no interest in being overly critical and sarcastic towards movies. I think there are plenty of YouTube video essayists and self-made movie critics out there on the internet already who can have that job. Uh, instead, I want to shine a light on movies that people might enjoy but otherwise might not have a chance to talk about at length, or even convince some people to, you know, watch a movie that they otherwise would have missed out on. Lastly, this is an adult-oriented podcast with extreme language and may contain references to scenes in films featuring disturbing content, so listener discretion is advised. Thanks again, and enjoy. This is a movie that I saw all the way back in, I believe, junior high, um, maybe like seventh grade. It was at that age of my life where I had already scoured over all of the Quentin Tarantino films that had been released up to that point. I think everything... Uh, besides Death Proof. Death Proof was actually, I think, in theaters at the time that I saw True Romance. So everything before that, the last film being, uh, I believe, Kill Bill Volume 2, I had already, you know, been obsessed with. I went through the whole junior high Tarantino phase that young movie nerds all go through. So I had already gotten that out of my system. The thing I had not experienced, necessarily, were the films of Tarantino that he wrote but didn't actually direct uh specifically natural born killers and this one true romance so going into this i was kind of tepid on it because i enjoyed tony scott um but at the time you know tony scott had already moved into a, a phase of his career where it was he was working with denzel all the time he'd already done man on fire which is one of my favorite two uh favorite movies at the time still is uh, he was doing a lot of very modern, very, very uh, cutting edge technology um, sort of, you know, high octane action movies. And so the idea of going backwards to, you know, what I consider to be a kind of middle ground, uh, cheap, 
90s crime drama was like, eh, you know, it didn't appeal to me right away. Uh, right away. So uh, I'm glad I, you know, I finally came around and educated myself uh, because when I saw this fucking movie, it knocked my socks off. I have distinct memories of seeing it for the first time. Um, it was actually the Tarantino cut that I saw the first time, uh, for those who are unfamiliar. Uh, the history of this movie, just a brief rundown, it was written as a screenplay by Quentin Tarantino, uh, who optioned this movie and the script for Reservoir Dogs at the same time. He offered them to Tony Scott, uh, who I believe he met at like a barbecue or something like that, and offered him, you know, one of the scripts for Tony to film, and Tony Scott picked this one. So Tony Scott said, all right, I'll... I'll take this script, I'll film this movie on one condition, I want to change the ending, because I love these characters, and I, you know, don't want to see them die, so there is one important part of the ending that I want to change, and Tarantino agreed to this on the condition that Tony Scott film both endings, and he didn't have to use the original ending, uh, but Tarantino wanted to have the original ending that he had written filmed, just in case later on, in his own filmmaking career, when he became a famous director, he could go backwards and recut the movie to include the ending he had originally envisioned. Uh, this was something that Tony Scott agreed to. He filmed both endings. The theatrical cut of the movie has the Tony Scott ending, of course. Um, and the Tarantino cut was released as a sort of almost bootleg fan project on DVD exclusively sometime in the early 2000s. Uh, so that DVD was the one that I saw um, whenever I sought out this movie I wanted to see, as I had just finished watching a bunch of Tarantino movies, I wanted to see his version of the movie first. So that was the version I sought out, that was the version I watched. Um, I can say pretty imperiously, after the fact, the Tony Scott cut is better. Now, there are specific aspects of the Tarantino ending that I think are conceptually better in terms of storytelling. Um, specifically, the death of the main character, Clarence, at the end of the movie, dies during the final shootout. And Alabama, uh, his love interest slash wife, uh, goes on the road uh, by herself at the end and sets off to, you know, make a better life for herself. On paper... That's, in my opinion, a better ending. The thing is, when you watch this film, the way that Tony Scott has shot it, he's applied his own very distinct uh, style and flourishes to it. The energy of the movie, as it progresses, the narrative push that it has just works better with the ending that he filmed. When you cut in the Tarantino ending, it very noticeably feels like it's coming from a different movie and from someone else's brain and it just doesn't sit as well i mentioned a little bit of the history um you know tarantino meeting tony scott um quentin tarantino's only film that he wrote and directed before this came out he had just put out reservoir dogs in theaters in 1992 it was his writing directing debut it was a critical darling but didn't set the world on fire exactly uh it actually wasn't until pulp fiction became a massive mainstream hit 
that people sort of were like, oh, yeah, okay, this guy seems pretty cool. What else has he done? And they went backwards and learned that, oh, not only did he already, you know, make this movie Reservoir Dogs, um, but he wrote that great Tony Scott movie that just came out a year before Pulp Fiction. Uh, so in the span of three years, he became the hottest sort of uh, edgy, provocateur indie filmmaker of the early 90s, and that was a reputation he would only grow uh, until today. His, he's still seen as a pretty uh, pretty insightful filmmaker, insightful as in inciting riots, not necessarily inciting <laughs> intellect. Everything he does comes under a lot of scrutiny, and the fact that this movie was even able to get made speaks a lot to you know how important Tony Scott was at the time in the film world. Uh, because he had he had already put out so just a that was Tarantino's history before this movie. Tony Scott was known for his very flashy, uh, very sort of uh, colorful and uh, kinetic directing style. He did a lot of work in music videos, uh, which were you know a lot of them were big on MTV. Uh, besides that, though movies he was known for were you know stuff like top gun and days of thunder with tom cruise um you know big budget sort of in your face noise and sound movies um he did beverly hills cop 2 which i maintain is better than the original uh the last boy scout was the movie he did i believe a year before true romance um you know and that had bruce willis in a leading role so he was a director who worked with a lot of like big heavy hitter uh, actors and his his projects were basically engineered to be blockbusters. Uh, if Tony Scott was putting out a movie, that was a movie that was pretty much guaranteed to break the bank and to put asses in seats in the movie theaters. So he took a gamble making this movie, uh, buying the script from Tarantino, and um, honestly, I think it paid off hugely because this is one of his best movies and hilariously one of the smallest movies he's ever made small in terms of scale and scope but i want to i want to break down the rest of the the names headlining this movie we've covered tony scott and tarantino this is where the movie really matters this is where the movie becomes sort of a unique beast so to speak what it is that uh you know you go back and really jumps out at you the cast of this movie, what really makes this movie pop is the fact that almost every actor, every person who shows up in this movie, if they weren't already hugely famous, would go on to become hugely famous. Uh, just reading off the names of what we've got here. Christian Slater, Patricia Arquette, Dennis Hopper, Christopher Walken, James Gandolfini, Tom Sizemore, Chris Penn, Gary Oldman, Samuel L. Jackson, Michael Rappaport, Brad Pitt, and Val Kilmer, whose face you don't even see. That's how fucking massive this ship of a cast was. They hired Val Kilmer, who was just coming off of Top Gun with Tom Cruise, and offered him a role in this movie. You don't even see his face. You see his shoulders down to basically his groin and that's it and he's doing a uh an elvis impression off screen there's even a a a cut scene um it didn't make it in the theatrical cut with jack black 
who I think he plays at Theater Usher. There's a scene in a movie theater we'll touch on. There are so many people you don't even see all of them in the movie is the point. This is a stacked cast, and honestly, you know, years on after I've seen it so many times, I'm still impressed by the sheer volume and weight of talent behind this project. With that being said, I want to get into kind of the first big category of what I'll be talking about, uh, which is the the supporting role players. I want to highlight the best elements of the cast who aren't necessarily the leads. Now, this doesn't mean that I don't appreciate or recognize, you know, Christian Slater or Patricia Arquette in the lead roles. Uh, I want to run down in order that they appear in the movie, uh, this supporting cast, and kind of just highlight a little bit of why it's so impressive they show up. Uh, Starting off, we have Samuel L. Jackson, whose sole purpose in this film, again, you barely see his face. It's him you recognize because of his voice, but he shows up in a nighttime scene in a hotel room wearing sunglasses and is turning away from the camera half the time. Uh, He walks in the room uh, to have a conversation about how he eats pussy. Well, hold on a second. Big D, you saying you eat pussy? Yeah, motherfucker, I eat everything. I eat the pussy, I eat the butt, I eat every motherfucking thing. Yeah, if I ever did eat some pussy. His entire role in the movie is he walks in, comments on how, uh, you know, I eat the pussy, I eat the butt, I eat everything. And then less than 30 seconds after these words have left his mouth, he dies in spectacular fashion, uh, blown away by a shotgun blast. It's pretty incredible i don't know how much he was paid for that but uh much respect to him uh gary oldman is playing drexel the pimp i know i'm pretty but i ain't as pretty as a couple of titties (laughs) this shop feels a white pimp who thinks he's black has dreadlocks has a scarred up face, uh, gold teeth, a blind eye, and the entire movie he spends wearing a leopard skin robe or some kind of like jacket top with nothing underneath it except tidy whities <laughs> And one of the things I love about this movie is now... The style is all Tony Scott. Everything about the visual appearance of the movie, the way it's shot. There's certain elements where the Tarantino-ness shines through like a spotlight. And no amount of outside interference can tamper with it. Uh, Drexel is one such invention. Uh, He is a creature who walked out of the slimiest and bloodiest of Quentin Tarantino's many unmade grindhouse style movie scripts straight into this Tony Scott movie and they hired probably the best character actor living at the time to play him and created a true monster moving on we have uh, Michael Rappaport uh, as Dick Ritchie um, Clarence's actor friend in Hollywood Uh, we're introduced to him. He shows up in a little audition trying to get a role in some, in some films in Hollywood. I'm driving. Okay. Where the fuck did he come from? 
I don't know. He just appeared like magic. Well, don't just sit there. Shoot him. Get him. Thank you, Mr. Ritchie. Uh, moving on from there, we have uh, Dennis Hopper as Clarence Worley's dad, uh, who has a showdown with Christopher Walken. In the one scene, Christopher Walken shows up as a Sicilian mob boss. <laughs> you know, I don't believe you. That's of minor importance. What is of major fucking importance is that I believe you. Where did they go? On their honeymoon. Uh, we have my personal favorite character of the movie, Brad Pitt as Floyd, uh, Dick Ritchie's roommate. Uh, <laughs> Safari Motor Motel Inn. Safari Motel. Safari Motel? Yeah. How do you know that? I mean, have you been over there? No. Well, they were here, and they said that they were going to go there. And they went. Yeah? Yeah. Safari, Safari Motel. Safari Motel. Uh-huh. Um, we have uh, Saul Rubinek as Lee Donowitz, who is the movie producer that Clarence Worley is attempting to sell uh, the cocaine he has stolen from Drexel to. What's this one called, anyway? It's a... Uh... Sequel, Body Bags. Really? So we don't have a title yet, but uh, what is Joe like? Uh, Body Bags 2. Ooh, that's imaginative. <laughs> Got more taste in my penis. <laughs> Lee Donowitz is canonically meant to be the grandson of Donnie Donowitz, a character who shows up in Inglorious Bastards. Uh, so he's, a, he's an establishing member of the Quentin Tarantino cinematic universe uh, that starts basically with Reservoir Dogs and this movie. Um, we have James Gandolfini, who I want to... I'm trying not to spend too much time talking about each character actor in this movie. James Gandolfini is a very special case here. Now, the first time you kill somebody, that's the hardest. I don't give a shit if you're fucking... Wired up a Jack the Ripper. Remember that guy in Texas? The guy up in that fucking tower killed all them people? <coughs> I bet you green money that first little black dot he took a beat on. That was a bitch at a bunch. First one is tough. No fucking fooling. What I love about James Gandolfini is that he comes in and probably... 25 minutes left to go in the movie just like right on the last leg uh he's he's seen in the background throughout like in the the walk-in hopper scene earlier in the film but for the most part uh he's relegated to just background scenery up until this moment where this is a really special scene to me uh because it is it's obvious that uh Tony Scott and Tarantino saw something very special in James Gandolfini and they wanted to really let him work with the material. Uh, he's playing basically just a psychopath in a, in a movie where we already had the flashy showy memorable psychopath, uh, in Drexel at the start of the film, uh, where you think we've already kind of gotten that, uh, big spectacular bad guy scene out of the way 
in comes in James Gandolfini um, as this unnamed mobster, and what he's doing is something really special that I love. Um, he's almost he's almost playing it sympathetically. Now he's a terrible, awful human being, as we see in the following scene, uh, where he just commits an absolutely atrocious act of, you know, abuse and violence on the character of Alabama. But in the moments up to that, and even in the points uh, between the scenes of violence where he's speaking with the character Alabama, everything about his demeanor, his speech, he's almost coming from, like, a place of, like, very deep personal pain and expressing that in his performance in a way that um, I don't think anyone but James Gandolfini could do. This is something that, you know, if you watch The Sopranos, uh, you know, he obviously plays the lead character, Tony Soprano. Uh, I think it was like six years was six years after True Romance was when The Sopranos aired. I, I, I'm of the opinion that if they hadn't found someone as powerful and convincing as James Gandolfini to do what he did in that role, I don't know that that scene would have had either as much of an impact or even that it would have been as long as it is because that's a big stretch of the movie um i mean it's a 10 12 minutes when he shows up uh through the points where he talks with alabama beats her up talks with her more beats her up again um all the way up until the moment she gets the upper hand and kills him it is a it is a long long stretch of the movie that he just completely dominates lastly we have Tom Sizemore and Chris Penn rounding out. For a year and a half, okay? Now the cops got this weirdo. Suspect's words. Who's, who's a front for him, all right? So our guy, Elliot Blitzer, he's making a deal between them and his boss. Big time fucking movie producer named Lee Donowitz. He did the movie Coming Home in a Body Bag. A Vietnam movie? Yeah. Good fucking movie. Fucking movie. Great fucking movie. So you believe him? I believe he believes him. This guy's too fucking rattled to be lying. I'm telling you, he'd roll over on his mommy's daddy's two panty granny and the fucking king of Siam. <laughs> I mean, this guy was a sissy. I mean, he really was. Something that this movie does that is very special, that makes it unique. Any character who's on screen at that moment is the lead character of this movie. They step in, they take it over. We are immediately seeing things from their perspective. We are uh, connected to them emotionally. And, you know, some of them are funny, some of them are scary, um, some of them are heroic, and some of them are absolutely terrible people. Um, There isn't a wasted moment with any of the characters in this movie, and that is, I mean, maybe five other movies I can think of that do something that strongly, and uh, no surprise, half of them are Tarantino movies. Moving on from the actual, the characters and the actors, uh, as we were watching it, I'm just I'm taking down notes on scenes, moments, and lines that I think are notable, whether because I think they're they're funny moments, or they're affecting, or they're just really badass uh, moments where the characters, the actors, really have room to shine, or maybe even just deliver a particularly juicy bit of acting. Uh, starting at the top of the hour. Uh, Drexel's whole speech to Clarence. Let's see. We're sitting down here, ready to negotiate. <laughs> You've already given up your shit. I'm still a mystery to you. But I know exactly where your white ass is coming from. See, if I ask if you want some dinner, and you grab the egg roll and start a try down, I said to myself, this motherfucker, he's carrying on like he ain't got a care in the world, and who knows? 
Maybe he don't. Maybe this fool's such a bad motherfucker. He don't got to worry about nothing. He just sit down, watch my motherfucking TV. See? Look who we got here. We got motherfucking Charlie Bronson's speech, uh, which is outstanding. And Clarence's reply, where he, you know, he gives him the, the envelope. I'm not eating because I'm not hungry. I'm not sitting because I'm not staying. I ain't looking at the movie because I already seen it seven years ago. It's the Mac. Max Julian, Carol Speed, and Richard Pryor. I ain't scared of you. I just don't like you. That whole stretch of the movie feels like that could have been a a climax to any other movie. Uh, it comes maybe 20 minutes in at this one. Moving on to the next bit. After Clarence has uh, murdered Drexel and his compatriots, he comes back to his apartment where Alabama's waiting for him, uh, drops some burgers on the table, and says quite emphatically, I killed him! Have a hamburger! <laughs> and starts digging in. I killed him. I'm a hamburger, so I'm a fucking star to death. Is this a joke? No joke. Mmm! No, it's probably the best goddamn fucking hamburger I've ever had in my entire life. I've never had a hamburger taste as good. Ah, best goddamn fucking hamburger I've ever had in my life. <laughs> the response Alabama gives is, I think, adorable and something that really sells that this is a room. Uh, this is a real like romance story. Uh, above all else, it is a, it is a love story. I think what you did. What? I think what you did. What? <gasps> Then we're off. Uh, from there, we move on to uh, Clarence taking Alabama to uh, meet his meet his dad, as played by Dennis Hopper. Uh, that whole little scene culminating in uh, they leave, and then the appearance of Christopher Walken as the Sicilian, and the showdown that he has with Dennis Hopper. Do you know who I am, Mr. Wally? I give up. Who are you? The Antichrist. You got me in a vendetta kind of mood. You tell the angels in heaven you never seen evil so singularly personified as you did in the face of the man who killed you. This is a scene that, if the Drexel scene wasn't enough to kind of impress upon the audience uh, how how violent and riotous this movie was going to be, this is the this is the scene that really really puts this movie over the top and it's a scene i don't even think tarantino could get away with shooting today uh not because tarantino has softened his style uh or his uh offensiveness at all but because this is a scene that really really uh is what makes this a very a very transgressive movie even in the world of crime movies where Dennis Hopper essentially uh, baits the Sicilian into murdering him so as not to give up the location of his son, Clarence, and Alabama uh, by informing the Sicilian of a little bit of the history of Sicily and the the Moors. Come again? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, it's a fact. Yeah. You see, uh, Sicilians have... Uh... Black blood. 
pumping through their hearts. And, and no, if you, if, you, if you don't believe me, uh, you can look it up. Hundreds and hundreds of years ago, uh, you see, um, the Moors conquered Sicily. Incredible amounts of really, really racist language. <laughs> I don't want to. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to, uh, you know, repeat any of this, any of the speech in any meaningful way here. But uh, this is enough to convince uh, Chris Watkins' character to murder Dennis Hopper outright. Moving on from this, we get into sort of the meat of Clarence's goal, which is to sell these. Sell this uh, suitcase of stolen cocaine to the movie producer Lee Donowitz uh, via a middleman who he uh, has a meeting with on a roller coaster. Uh, after which we hard cut to... Elliot, do I look like a beautiful blonde with big tits and an ass tastes like French vanilla ice cream? What? We meet Lee Donowitz in the car talking to Clarence on the phone immediately afterwards. Hey! Choose a fucking lane! No, not you. Just some idiot. Don't give me the finger! I'll fucking have you killed! Brad Pitt was not a nobody when this movie was released. But in this movie, uh, he had already had, I believe, California and Thelma and Louise. But here we have, he's just playing this dopey, ineffectual stoner character. Hey, get some, some beer. And some, some cleaning products. Uh, who ends up being, in a way, kind of the most important character of the movie, uh, because he's the one who directs the Italians uh, to the hotel where the drug deal is going down, and ends up getting everyone killed in the climax of the movie. Now, this this next category is a little little tougher. Um, the shots. Uh, the photography of this movie now this is a very i don't want to say pleasant but it is a very exciting movie to look at uh tony scott's visual style is pretty overwhelming he has lots of tight tight close-ups and dutch angles uh violence is intercut with a lot of flashing light and smoke uh even whenever there's not you know any action going on he's got uh, characters wreathed in cigarette smoke or bathed in neon lights coming in through windows. But overall, not a lot of, uh, you know, wide shots or scenery that we can look at. Some that I did note that I wanted to draw special attention to. There is the moment early on uh, after Clarence has met Alabama, their first conversation in the diner. They're sharing a slice of cherry pie, and camera is kind of pulling in and out where the windows, the blinds are kind of directing the beams of light onto their faces in kind of mirrored fashion. Uh, There's a shot after uh, Clarence has taken Alabama to meet his dad. There's a shot where uh, Alabama and Clarence are standing outside. On one side of the frame, we have the trailer on the opposite side of the frame, we have a train coming towards the camera. There's a Rottweiler dog. Alabama's doing a somersault. Clarence is sitting on the hood of his purple Cadillac. Basically, everything you need to know about the visual style, time, and setting of this movie can can be found within that one shot. This grungy, poor, 
you know, cast of characters we're following, but kind of wrapped in this very glitzy, glamorous coat of paint. Moving on from there, uh, one shot I particularly liked, and this is trickier, after James Gandolfini has, you know, laid into Alabama and is beating her pretty horrifically, there is a moment where he has knocked her down on the ground and is standing over her, and we get this shot of sort of a Dutch angle. She's in the foreground, kind of prone, and he's in the background, uh, filling the space behind her. One final shot I did really like was there's a... After after the scene, after James Gandolfini has been dispatched, uh, Clarence takes Alabama away, and they are sitting on a couch out in front of an airport um, behind a wire fence. You can see the air the airstrip behind them with planes taking off and landing and they're sitting on this shitty broken down couch as he gives her first aid and she's got this cup of dunkin donuts coffee it's one of the few sort of wide angle bits of scenery shots that we get in the entire movie characters fashion in this movie i'm not going to belabor how much i dislike what people are wearing in this movie too much. Um, the early 90s were a uh, a terrifying moment in history for, you know, what people found fashionable. There's a couple jackets. Now, one thing I want to do, if this, is a, if this is a category that sticks around, would I wear this jacket? I'm someone who... I have a couple jackets of my own. I have a very nice leather jacket that I'm, you know, very fond of. Um, I have hoodies, and I have coats, uh, I have my pea coat from the Navy. I'm someone, I've, I greatly appreciate a very classy, visually striking piece of outerwear. That being said, I'm also a pretty practical person, so I like to find the middle ground between what's really nice to look at and what isn't, you know, completely nonsensical. This movie in particular, two pieces of outerwear that I want to mention... Uh, Clarence's old airborne infantry jacket we see him wearing at the start of the movie uh, when he's in the movie theater where he meets Alabama uh, and then later on he's coming out of a building with Alabama they're coming down some steps he's already wearing this bright red emblazoned Elvis style sports coat uh, and then he puts the airborne infantry jacket over that and it is an absolutely nightmarish uh, wardrobe combination that I, I cannot forgive. Uh, I would not wear his infantry jacket. It's an abomination, and I want to set it on fire. The other bit of outerwear in this movie, I've, I previously mentioned Drexel's leopard print jacket that he's wearing in the scene where uh, Clarence confronts him. I was looking at this thing way longer than anyone should be allowed to, trying to figure out, is that a jacket? Is that a robe? Is that... You know, is that meant to be, like, part of a suit? What is that thing? Because he has nothing, nothing underneath it. The only other piece of clothing he's wearing besides the jacket is this leather cap and then his underwear, his his white cloth underwear. That jacket is something else, and 
I would absolutely not wear that one either. So unfortunately, where this movie exceeds in terms of cast and talent, uh, it absolutely fails in its character's ability to uh, produce bits of clothing that I think any human being should be allowed to wear, and I would gladly sink a trunk filled with these characters' jackets to the bottom of the ocean. Next category, I have points in the movie where I feel a specific song was used or even just the theme music came in at an especially affecting part. Something very interesting, something very unique about this movie's soundtrack uh, is composed by Hans Zimmer. Um, now, we think of Hans Zimmer as these very big, bombastic, heavy, thudding, um, violin-heavy, epic sort of composer who does a lot of superhero movies. And the thing about Hans Zimmer is back in the day, back in the 80s and 90s, he really ate out on composing soundtracks for films that were pretty pulpy crime films like this one. What he's done for this movie, the main theme is it's an almost like safari jungle type of theme it's very it's very light and almost almost quirky sound and what i love is that there are scenes in the movie there like often moments of the movie where characters are having very big important emotional confrontations uh specifically the scene where clarence and his dad are having the argument outside of his dad's trailer. Oh, you're my son. Oh, you got it. Huh? All worked out, don't you, huh? Oh, yeah. Look, I mean, goddamn, I have never asked you for a goddamn thing, huh? But Jesus fucking Christ. I mean, after mom divorced you, did I ever ask you for anything? No, I didn't. And when I wouldn't see you for a year and a half to two years, did I ever get in your shit about him that whole fucking time you were drunk? Did I ever get mad and point my finger at you? No, I never did. Everybody else did, but I didn't. The words they're saying are pretty stark and angry, but this music comes in and it spins these scenes in a way where even when we don't get to see a lot of moments between Clarence and Alabama and how much they really love each other, this music almost reinforces the fact that everything is happening because of their love, because of their romance together. Quentin Tarantino's script aside, I don't know of any other director at the time this movie came out who would have been willing to to gamble on the soundtrack like that. Not necessarily gamble on Hans Zimmer, because as I said, he's already working on many movies like this before. Um, but specifically to really, really drive home the counterpoint of the main theme of this movie. Um, because if this movie had something more brooding and dark-sounding or industrial, um, as a lot of other action movies in the 90s did, I think it would come across as a far less enjoyable movie to watch. So kudos to uh, Hans Zimmer for being able to really lift the the mood and the spirit of this movie up above its subject matter. I'm a sucker for Chris Cornell. Outshined by Soundgarden is the song we hear in the scene when uh, the Italians come in to interrogate Floyd as to the whereabouts of uh, Clarence and Dick Ritchie. <laughs> Oh, man. 
Are you Dick Ritchie? Uh, no. Do you know a Clarence Wally? Yes. <laughs> um, it's it's great because it's it was a big it was a big hit of a song at the time the movie came out, but it is a hundred and twenty percent exactly the kind of music that someone like Floyd would be listening to. This like he he's smoking weed out of a a honey bottle and listening to Soundgarden. Um, that's like. I, I can't think of a more if if he didn't have a single line in the movie I can't think of a more perfect way to kind of inform everything you need to know about the character in such a small amount of time. Uh, next category this is a little bit of a fun one, although it, for this specific movie it's not going to be the most uh, <laughs> labor intensive. Um, who would I hang out with? Uh, which is to say, of all the cast of characters in this movie. Who would I want to spend time with after the events of the movie, after the credits are up? Who would I just want to, like, you know, go to a barbecue with, get a burger with, go to a movie with, just spend some time with? Uh, the thing is, basically, everyone in this movie is pretty awful. <laughs> um, I definitely would not want to spend time with Clarence Worley. Um, first and foremost, because he is a verifiable crazy person. We see him hallucinating... Uh, Elvis, who tells him an, in 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 pretty uh, uncertain terms that if Clarence quote wants to get unhaunted, he's got to shoot a man in the face. The man being Drexel. Um, I would not want to spend time with uh, James Gandolfini. Um, I have much respect and love and affection for James Gandolfini, the actor, but his character is. Uh, absolute pure evil in this um the only answer the only acceptable answer i have for this question is floyd hey you want to watch some tv or something they might be back here no no thank you thank you okay all right you take care i might be back yeah okay be cool condescend me man fucking kill you man Floyd is a true gem. I would be sure not to condescend him if we were to ever hang out together. Uh, although I have a feeling we would probably just end up, you know, sitting on a couch all day while he watched The Outer Limits and smoked weed. The next category, how would I improve this movie? Um, if I had some measure of creative control or influence or input on this movie when it was being made, what's something that I would do to kind of maybe you know improve is a is a subjective term but what would what would i do differently um i mentioned tony scott's shooting style it's very energetic this movie specifically in a way that his movies otherwise don't really do um he is really up in characters faces in this movie i mean every shot basically is a very tight tight close-up on people's faces um it doesn't help that so much of it is you know uh is dutch angles or it's you know again the cigarette smoke and the flashing lights and all that now there's nothing wrong with it but i would i would spend the time for a lot of establishing shots to kind of back things up a bit because there are scenes in this movie where we cut to a character for the first time seeing them 
and we're just right up in their face. Like there's no there's no dramatic introduction to them. We're just there. We're just looking at the plaque on their teeth. And I just like I just wanted like, yo, Tony Scott, just just take a step back, all right? Just like let's 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 read the room first. Um a lot of it is because there's there's some production design. There's some very specific detail put into the sets of this movie, like the hotel room um, Clarence and Alabama are staying at in Hollywood uh, before the drug deal goes down. Um, you know, the statues and the, the murals on the wall, the, the beach and the ocean that we see, the, the TV that's, you know, sitting on the dresser. Um, the bull that's got the sugar packets, you know, there's all these little, like, the, the, the knickknacks that are scattered around, um, these little touches that, you know, it's obvious someone took a lot of time and effort to really flesh out this room to make it feel like this is a room there where someone, like, lives. Um, so I'd want to see a little bit more of that and a little bit less of, uh, Drexel licking his teeth after sucking on some Chinese food chicken. Something else I would change, the beginning and the end of this movie, there's some segments they introduced, which uh, I understand kind of why they're there. Alabama's voiceover, her introduction, and her outro to the movie, I would drop those. I would find another way to introduce what it is she's saying in the actual you know, context of the story itself. I get what they're doing. Alabama, of all the cast of characters, probably has the least amount to say during the course of the story. Uh, and, you know, it's it's a bit unfair. So we, we spend the opening and the closing scenes of the movie with her addressing the audience and sort of giving a voiceover narration. I would find a way to work the important parts of what it is she's saying into her dialogue in the script. Um... I know without the voice af- without the voiceover segment at the end, we wouldn't get the uh, you know the "you're so cool" line. We wouldn't get the very the affecting and emotional introduction to Baby Elvis, uh, the child she has with Clarence um, right before we cut to credits. You're so cool. You're so cool. And sometimes Clarence asks me what I would have done if he had died if that bullet had been two inches more to the left. To this, I always smile, as if I'm not going to satisfy him with a response. But I always do. Uh, but that's something that just, it feels it feels lazy, and it feels like it's really doing a disservice to her character as a whole, her standing in the story. So I'd find a way to cut those out entirely, if I could. The last thing that I would change, and this isn't necessarily an improvement, but... There's a theme throughout. I mentioned the main theme, the music of the movie, and it's it's something that kind of pops up a little bit actually throughout. Um, there's a very safari sort of vibe going on. The the main theme, the the music, uh, the clothing Drexel is wearing. He's wearing a leopard print blazer, sitting on a tiger stripe couch. He's got not one but two claw necklaces. Um, they meet for the uh, the initial drug deal at a uh, at a like a carnival at a roller coaster, where Clarence is talking to Elliot, and there's that funny little moment where he's like, "Oh, you wanna you wanna animal crackers? Save the gorillas, you know." And it's cute. It's unloading for two hundred thousand. You want an animal cracker? 
Um, thanks. All right, save the grills. Grills. Okay. Um, thanks. So you got you got that. There's a lot of little things like that all throughout the movie, where we're just we're reminded very strangely specifically about like wild animals, and even there is actually. Uh, a little bit of uh, history where the scene at the roller coaster was actually going to take place at a zoo. Um, they were going to shoot that scene in a zoo instead of at a roller coaster, but uh, either because of budget or availability reasons, they had to reschedule and change the location to uh, the roller coaster instead. Um so I would push to kind of put that back in the meeting at the zoo and really lean into that because I think it, it's it's just it's just this little bit of extra flavor that doesn't necessarily make story sense, but really, really amps up the identity and the brand of this movie. The way we're seeing these these characters, you know, tackle these very contemporary human crime themes uh, through the lens of you know, not to get too film school pretentious, but primal animal urges and instincts. So, I mean, those are just a few of the things that I think, if if I had a little bit of push and a little bit of say on this movie, those were some things I would do differently. Um, the next category, again, a short one for this movie. Um, how would I remake this movie or how would I make a sequel? If I were put in charge of... Uh, rebuilding this movie, rebooting it, rebranding it, reimagining it, or if I wanted to create a continuation of it, what would I do? And there's only one answer to this as well. Um, I wouldn't remake it. I would not touch it. Uh, I wouldn't even necessarily make a sequel. What I would love to see, though, is I mentioned the cinematic universe that Tarantino has going on between his different movies. There is a moment, we just watched Reservoir Dogs the other day. There's a moment where uh, Alabama is referenced in dialogue by Mr. White um, in a flashback scene in that movie where he mentions that he pulled a couple jobs with her before she moved on and hooked up with uh, another male suitor. I would love to see the time in between True Romance and Reservoir Dogs where Alabama, uh, whether because she split from Clarence or because Clarence died, getting, you know, getting himself killed because he's an idiot, um, where she's on her own and meets up with Mr. White and the, the heists and the jobs that they pull together. I think that would be a really a really fun bit of, forgive the pun, pulp fiction that we'd get to see. So that is that is the only way that I think this story would be able to continue. Otherwise, I think it's about as perfect as a 90s crime drama can get. Can, can get and I wouldn't change a thing otherwise. Secret meanings or conspiracies. What sort of hidden message do this movie have? Now, I'm not really a fan of fan theories. Um, I tend to think fan theories are stupid and not only born out of a um, a lack of paying attention to the story that the, the fan has just seen or read, um, but I also think they have a tendency to err on the side of repetition and basically every fan theory is the same in terms of oh this character is actually dead or in a coma or oh what if this person was actually the 
parent slash sibling slash son or daughter of this other character, etc., etc. And that shit drives me insane. In this instance, there is a little bit of solidity to the idea in this movie specifically that Clarence is actually imagining a lot of what's going on. And here's what I mean by this. We know he hallucinates seeing Elvis when he's alone in the bathroom a couple times. Elvis pops in and is like, hey, buddy, uh, you shot a guy in the face lately? You should, uh, you, should, you should think about doing that. It's pretty cool. I like you, Clarence. Go murder someone. Killing's the hard part. Getting away with it? It's easy. You think a cop gives a fuck about a pimp? Listen, every pimp in the world gets shot. Two in the back of the fucking head. Cops will throw a party, man. Now, from the start of this movie, any scene that's focused on Clarence, um, we have a very sort of detached from reality attitude. Um, he meets Alabama, this perfect girl, who we've already seen him strike out at the at the very start of the movie, the opening scene. Uh, he strikes out with this woman at a bar um, who turns him down, going to see, you know, kung fu movies with him. In the very next scene... A very similar-looking female character, who we learn is Alabama, appears in the movie theater as he's watching these kung fu movies. Um, she's totally into the movies. Uh, she's totally into him. She wants to, you know, uh, smoke with him and take him to eat pie at a diner. And then she wants him to, you know, take her to his job and his work. And, you know, she's all into the comic books and everything. Um you know, we find out that actually she was a call girl who was hired by his boss at the movie, uh, or not at the movie theater, excuse me, uh, his boss at the comic book store, um, you know, to take him out on a date for his birthday. But where things also sort of compound, as the movie goes on, um, he does some things that are questionable in terms of realism. Uh, now this is a guy who, he works in a comic book store and spends all of his time watching kung fu movies starring Sony Chiba. He meets his dream girl, uh, kills a bunch of gangsters after a pretty badass verbal showdown with them, steals their cocaine, runs away to, uh, Hollywood, um, uh, let me back up. First, he meets he meets his dad, who he hasn't seen in years. Who, his dad, who is an ex cop, after being informed that his son has just murdered a pimp and married a prostitute, uh, he has a moment where he's kind of like, "Wow, slow down, son." But then in the very next scene, he's just like, "Man, the more I found out about this Drexel guy, good job, son." You want to have some money? Like, here's some spending cash as you go to Hollywood. Like, he's, like, completely on board with it. Good job killing that dude. Here's some money. Have fun in Hollywood with your new prostitute wife. I'll see you after the honeymoon. Like, he's just, like, all on board with it. Um, I feel like there'd be a little bit more static if you hadn't seen your dad in a few years. Um, he runs away to Hollywood, becomes an expert drug dealer who is dealing with the highest, you know, elite Hollywood producer... Lee Donowitz, who produced his favorite movie, and Lee Donowitz is immediately stricken with him as like, wow, Clarence, you're a really cool guy, and I like you a lot. I like you more than I like my own assistant here, Elliot. Um, 
I mean, even even that little scene where as Alabama is, you know, being savaged by James Gandolfini, we see Clarence out and about. Um, he runs into a civilian on the street reading uh, a Newsweek art uh, magazine with an Elvis article, an Elvis cover, and Clarence immediately attaches himself to this total stranger who, understandably, is pretty creeped out at first, but within the span of just a minute, listening to Clarence talk is totally like, oh, yeah, man, yeah, absolutely, and is totally on board with this complete fucking nobody loser who just came out of nowhere to talk about Elvis. Um, Everything about Clarence's motivations and what we see, um, I think, can be called into question. I don't think he's the most reliable of narrators, and obviously the scenes with the Elvis hallucinations prove that. But interestingly, every time we're not following Clarence directly, whether it's like from Alabama's point of view, or if it's, you know, the scene with his dad after Clarence has left, um, those are the scenes where characters really suffer the most violent consequences. Um, So it's almost like Clarence shows up um, walking through the stream life and everything... Everything is great and cool, and then as soon as he leaves, we're back to reality where people are, you know, actually dying and actually getting hurt. So, the the conspiracy, the secret meaning, or the 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 hidden the hidden story beneath the story that Clarence is actually imagining everything that's going on. Um, I think there's a little bit of validity there that isn't isn't completely worth dismissing. Next category, loose ends of the movies. I really struggled with this one. Like, I really, really, really paid attention to see if there's anything that just, like, doesn't get tied up by the end of this movie because... And and to be clear, this isn't plot holes. This is plot ends. Things we don't see the conclusion of. We're left wondering what happened. Any unanswered questions of the movie? Basically, by the end of this movie, pretty much anyone who isn't Clarence or Alabama winds up dead. Uh, so their <laughs> their plot threads are tied up pretty nicely. Um, I did come up with two. Uh, after the after the hotel shootout, everyone dies. Dick Ritchie escapes. Does he ever become an actor after that? I mean, he he auditions. He gets a part over the phone. Um, does he? abandon the acting business or does he keep does he keep that role does he you know does the fact that he was involved in a hotel shootout where drug deal went bad killed lee donowitz the biggest producer in hollywood as well as 30 cops and gangsters uh does that hurt his resume or does that make him more attractive (laughs) as an actor to certain projects um that was something i find interesting i'd love to know the answer to that the second loose loose end did floyd ever get his cleaning products did he ever did he ever get the beer and cleaning products i think he's i think he's back at that house waiting forever i don't think he ever gets that lysol or those pringles i think i think dick Ritchie is out the door and is just down the road gone forever which i guess technically means that you know dick Ritchie doesn't become an actor and therefore you know, he leaves Hollywood, he flees, and uh, he doesn't become an actor, and Floyd does not get his cleaning products, and is unfortunately forced to live in squalor listening to Soundgarden for the rest of his days. So, okay, maybe not loose ends, maybe 
those those two those two questions actually answered each other. How about that? All right. The three course meal. Watching this movie, what would I recommend you make and eat while watching it? Easy. This is uh these are all things that appear in the movie. Uh open with the appetizer, a big bucket of movie theater popcorn with a box of goobers. Moving on to Chinese food entree. Uh, doesn't matter what it is, as long as you have an abundance of it. Uh, make sure you have an egg roll on the side. Finish it with a, uh, a styrofoam cup of iced Pepsi. And lastly, for dessert, a big slice of diner-style cherry pie and a cup of coffee with enough sugar in it that the spoon stands up. That's true romance. That's it. Uh, if you are still hungry after this movie, um, other films I would recommend. Uh, the entirety of Quentin Tarantino's filmography, uh, everything from you know Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, that early 90s crime drama thriller style that he shot in. Um, Tony Scott uh, directed, I mentioned, The Last Boy Scout, came out the year before this. Uh, Crimson Tide came out the year after. Very different movie, but um, you can you can get a lot of the same sort of kinetic energy between those three movies that is found in True Romance. Very propulsive filmmaking. As far as TV shows go, The Sopranos is not just because of James Gandolfini, but in terms of the very, the very uh, blended humor like the black humor and detachment from reality we get to see in Clarence um you know his his hallucinations uh the extreme violence and extreme sadness that is all whirled together in this two-hour movie uh The Sopranos is probably the closest I could recommend in terms of television and if you are a gamer uh, the Grand Theft Auto series. Specifically, I would say uh, Grand Theft Auto Vice City is, in terms of tone and content, very similar to True Romance. There's there's a bit of the sort of Los Angeles uh, 90s vibe going on in San Andreas, um, but by and large, I think Vice City is more closely synced with the, the tone of this movie. What did we learn from this movie? What lesson did we come away from it? I can tell you this right off the bat. It ain't white boy day. (laughs) All right. Thank you all for uh, hanging out with me tonight. Uh, This was True Romance. Uh, Pilot episode of Picking the Bones, if that's the name I, I stick with. We'll see how I feel about it tomorrow. Um. But, uh, yeah, this was fun. Uh, I definitely I definitely need to do some some tweaking and some reordering of some of the categories. And But this is a movie that just, I mean, the characters and the performances and the stacked cast and the writing, they all, it's just this wall of filmmaking that just buries you. So, um, yeah, it was, it's a, it's a, it's a tough nut to crack. There is, there is some 
dense filmmaking going here, but one of my all-time favorite movies. And uh, yeah, hopefully those of you who have not seen it are hungry to watch it. And those of you who have seen it, uh, maybe you'll rewatch it and get something else out of it. Uh, just remember to bring home some cleaning products. All right, guys. Thank you for hanging out, and I will see you later. Maybe next time. We'll see. If you made it this far, congratulations. You are a stronger person than I. I don't know that I could listen to myself talk for so long. <laughs> uh, in all seriousness, though, uh, this was a hugely fun time. My Twitch chat enjoyed the hell out of participating, and I enjoyed the hell out of doing it. If more conversations about movies or more time spent with me is something you're interested in, uh, you can find me streaming almost daily at twitch.tv slash lonin, that's L-O-N-A-N, as well as at lonintv on Twitter. Uh, doing more podcasts like this will be based almost entirely around word-of-mouth recommendation, so if you have any family or friends, uh, particularly anyone in the furry community uh, who might be interested in hearing me break down more movies in the future, uh, go ahead and send them a link to this pod. Let them know they can find me at those links I mentioned. If you want to recommend me some movies I can break down in the future, catch me on Twitch or Twitter, uh, submit your suggestions, and I'll consider it if any of those suggestions get enough traction. Until then, thanks for listening to Pick the Bones, Episode 1. Have a good night.